0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is March 6, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is an honour to be joined in dialogue by members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup Groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today we start a reading of the Sophist, ending at 235b. In ancient Greece, the sophist was a teacher who exchanged his professed expertise for money. And in Plato's dialogue, the extent of the sophist's expertise is called into question. We will see the application of Plato's method to identify the imitation and contradictions in the sophist teaching. And we will have a chance to consider the many ways that sophistry is practiced today. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive link to the event notice on meetup.com. As participants exchange their thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Using first name from your screen profile, I'll call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe. A casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So the majority of the dialogue in the first part of the Sophist takes place between young Theotetus and an unnamed visitor from Elia. The visitor is a follow-up Parmenides and Parmenides maxim that the form of being of that which is, is unopposed. For Parmenides and the visitor, the words that which is not are an illogical contradiction and cannot be. We'll explore more of the form of being in our next episode, preparing for that today in our focus on Plato's method of collection and division. Using this method, expertise is divided into successive opposites to follow the common thread and, quote, chase a thing through both the particular and the general, unquote, in order to give a clear account of what the sophist is by means of dialectic. The visitor from Elia asserts the necessity of this method to reach an agreement about the thing itself by means of a verbal explanation rather than doing without any such explanation and merely agreeing about the name. At issue is the name that we apply to anything like expertise. Just because someone takes the name of expert doesn't mean that they are in fact knowledgeable. Although sophist translates as pure pursuer of wisdom, he is presented as an imitator who professes a wide range of knowledge but lacks understanding of the truth of a thing. The sophist will tell us what a thing is not but cannot say what a thing is, particularly virtue, knowledge of which the sophist claims to hold and sells to unsuspecting youth. So what does a sophist know about virtue? How does a sophist learn about virtue? And is virtue even teachable? That was a question in Plato's Mino, and of obvious importance to the shaping of young minds. Does the sophist know his own limitations? So the worst type of ignorance, says the visitor Familiar, is not knowing, but thinking that you know. He goes on to state, "That's what probably causes all of the mistakes when we make when we think." Before we begin to examine Plato's method of collection and division, I thought it would be helpful for context to discuss examples of modern sophistry. How do we understand the meaning of the name expert, which seems to appear with increasing frequency in news reports? And how do we discern truth from fiction in what the so-called experts say? Does technology help us to determine the value of expertise on sale? Or does it exploit ignorance? Do any types of modern sophistry come to mind? So I just wanted to put that question out there for anyone to comment on. Um, you know do we see examples of this you know selling of expertise today, and you know that question about technology, how does our use of technology now kind of uh, you know affect our that, that that transaction that we make in the exchange of knowledge? Does it help? Does it hinder? Does it do both? Because we don't use the word sophist now. It's, it's a word that doesn't really appear at all very often. It's a word that certainly, I think, was a lot more common back in ancient Greece. Uh, but just wanted to get some thoughts on that. Moshe, your thoughts.
1: Um, yes, we don't use sophist um, like we used to. Um, technology, to address your question specifically, I think uh, makes us, it enables us to be um, both uh, lazy and engaged simultaneously, not to the same people. Uh, It makes people lazy because you can read something somewhere. And like um, um, Deirdre said that, you know, once something is in print, it becomes like a canon. It becomes like a you know like like a, 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 an axiom, a law. And so you see something on a social platform uh, or one of the many uh, disinformation websites out there, and, and then of course, well, you know that's the that's the that's the correct analysis. That's the uh, I don't want to say the word truth, but it, it's something similar to that. It's something that a person makes a claim to knowledge about. On the other hand. Technology makes it such that we can do a lot of uh, research behind, you know, b- behind any story or claim. You know, we can go to multiple sources and find out what uh, what other uh, people are saying and um, and uh, interrogate uh, in, interrogate sources, interrogate witnesses ourselves, and come up with um, uh, with with something that is uh, is not uh, blended with uh, uh, some political message. And all we have to do is, is, you know, take the time to go out and and, and do the research. So, you know, I, I think uh, technology can be sort of a, can, can be a double-edged sword there for people who want uh, uh, to find out what's really going on. It's a, it's a tremendous tool. And for those people who simply want to be, for lack of a better term, sucked into the, to the contemporary zeitgeist, uh, you can be completely lazy with it.
2: I think a lot of people
0: would agree with that take on on it, Moshe. That uh, you know it is—it's kind of you know a double-edged sword. I'm not sure if you use that term, but it's uh, you know it's um, it has its advantages and its disadvantages. Certainly, very different, I guess, from the days of ancient Greece, where um, you know ideas would be transmitted you know in writing or or verbally, um, and now we've got this other means of communication. Um, so yeah, uh, so thank you for that. And, and J.K., your
3: take on that? So um, a sophist, uh, the way um, Plato describes the sophist, it's a person who uh, he claims to know um, everything. He's an expert on everything, and and um, you know, no matter what um, area of knowledge, but they're but they're really um, really expert in the disputation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like if you want an answer, you go to a sophist. Um they'll, they'll, they'll give you, they'll tell you they'll teach you how to uh, gain knowledge of whatever you want to know, or uh, skill or knowledge, whatever you want to learn. Um <clears throat> but the um it's really um the person with all the answers. And so today we could uh, you know, we are um we look to people who will tell us, give us the answer, like motivational speakers or, um, whatever, um, you know, um, kind of, um, new age, you know, uh, um, fad or whatever that comes along. You can, you can subscribe to them, pay them money, and they'll teach you how to live your life and improve your life. And uh, mm-hmm. so with, with technology, it, it's, uh, it also provides a kind of an easy, easy answer, right? Um, they'll just, you know, you you purchase the right technology. You, um, you, well, you can use it as an instrument, um, but um, but maybe it's the also the illusion that you can just depend on technology to do everything for you. Mm. Is that a kind of an imitation of what the, this office is talking about? They're also imitators, right? They're able to represent. Something that replaces what the truth is, or what the uh, yeah, what the truth is, what the reality is.
2: Yeah,
0: I think so. You know, this idea that the sophist is an expert on everything, and that's that's you know referred to by the visitor familia, uh And you use the word you know dis- dispute. Uh, you know, the the sophist uh, Plato writes is uh, you know good at dispute, which is he, he characterizes dispute as being. Between private people, we be private discussion. And controversy is the other type of uh, uh, skill that the SOFA seems to have. And controversy he uses in the context of uh, public discussion. So, dispute is private and controversy is public. And the SOFA seems to excel at both of those skills. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I think we see a lot of now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's as you said, I think it's it's held out to be some sort of imitation. And certainly the word imitation is used a lot in this. So, um, Jose, your thoughts? Um, yes. Um,
4: something that um, Mosh had said that, that got me thinking about a question I, I once got from my daughter that said, how do I know what is the truth these days? I mean, what do I read? How can I evaluate this thing? And this is a discussion we had with my other colleague, Jose, and it was his idea that that makes sense when you're dealing with um, thinking critically about a topic you don't know much about. One thing is to discuss the weather or the politics. You read them in a newspaper. Another one is when you're talking about a subject that you don't know much about. And somebody makes a pronouncement or a claim about it. So some says, well, apply critical thinking. Yeah, but this is a subject I don't know much about. So, an idea is you, instead of going and researching, I cannot research years of geometry or engineering to try to assess somebody's opinion on the subject. So, what you do is you go to another qualified source, at least in, on paper, that has an opposed opinion to the other guy. Then, what you do is you synthesize the arguments of both, and then you make your own decision about… What to believe. You may be wrong, but at least it's your decision, which you couldn't make if you just listened to one expert, one so-called expert. In other words, it's a method to try to ascertain by yourself without having being yourself an expert in an area, just juxtaposition of two experts with credentials, analyze their arguments, and all you need to know how to do is to how to evaluate an argument. And then decide. I think this is better than that. And then, if you come across another one, you continue the synthesis of these two opposed opinions. Anyway, just a little. It may not work. So uh, I haven't tried it yet. So don't blame me. Blame uh, the other Jose with with this thing.
0: That's a really interesting idea. I like that idea of synthesizing opposed um views. And, and you know, obviously. One of the key themes here today is this idea of um, naming, and so if somebody takes the name expert or the name expert is applied to somebody, and we see that a lot, you know, so many times I look at a news headline and it says experts say, so just because somebody's been labeled an expert or labels themselves an expert doesn't mean that they're actually an expert, they could just be an expert in name only but what you said about looking for opposed ideas and synthesizing i think that touches really kind of closely on what we're going to talk about today this idea of this continual division that that the visitor familia presents as a way of determining um what somebody actually is apart from the name that's applied to them so that so that we can actually sift through this sort of, you know, imitation and find the truth of something. So I I think that's a really interesting way of presenting it that that idea of looking for opposed views and and finding some sort of common thread between them. Definitely a really interesting idea. Let's look at um, the uh, excerpt from the text here, I'm just going to share my screen. And this is um, the notion of ideas being presented in a marketplace uh, that appears around 219. So this particular short bit is from 219A to 219D. Um, And here the visitor from Elia is talking about the nature of expertise and dividing expertise into types. So he starts by saying, uh, expertise as a whole falls pretty much into two types. Theotidas, who he's talking to, is the, the young, the young uh, man. Uh, theotetus says, how? And the visitor says, well, there's farming or any sort of caring for any mortal body. And there's also caring for things that are put together or fabricated, which we call equipment. And there's imitation. The right thing to, uh, The right thing would be to call all those things by a single name. Theotida says, how? What name? The visitor says, when you bring anything into being that wasn't in being before, we say you're a producer and that the thing you've brought into being is produced. Next, consider the whole type that has to do with learning, recognition, commerce, combat, and hunting. None of these creates anything. They take things that are or have come into being, and they take possession of some of them with words and actions, and they keep other things from being taken possession of. For that reason, it would be appropriate to call all the parts of this type acquisition. Aren't there two types of expertise in acquisition? Is one type mutually willing exchange through gifts and wages and purchase? And would the other type, which brings things into one's possession by actions and words, the expertise in taking possession? So this is the beginning of this um, process or method of dividing things into two. Um, so he starts by talking about expertise. He says two types of expertise. There's caring for living things and caring for fabricated things. And fabricated things here includes learning. So these are things that are not brought into being. These are things that are uh, applied to things that are already in being. So the production is bringing new things into being. And uh, caring for things that are put, put together or fabricated, that's after something is being brought into being. So, that's the two types of expertise that he says. So, let's, let's start, you know, if we're going to say that somebody has expertise, let's start by dividing expertise into the various types. And then he, you know, goes on to say, well, there's producers and there's acquirers. So, um, the producer is somebody who brings things into being and the acquirer is the person who, you know, obtains that that production. Uh, and obtains it in one of two ways, obtains it by a willing exchange, which is, you know, through sale, you know, in exchange for money uh, or in or in exchange for words and actions. And this is where we're starting to go down the line that eventually takes us to the sophist. So the sophist is one who you know, applies words and actions uh, to to take possession of things or uh, to keep. Other things from being taken possession of, and so he's divided into production and acquisition, so it seems to me that it's like you know presenting this context is a bit of a marketplace, you know there's buyers and sellers, uh, and the sophist is is doing the acquisition part of this and this the method of of continual division and what I did here was uh, if you can see this screen now with this breakdown of expertise. So this is the, this is kind of what I took from this section, you know, from about 2, 219 through 223 or so. I drew it as a, you know, as as each thing has two parts. And so I drew an arrow. So I started with the word expertise, which is what they're trying to find out. And I drew an arrow to one side saying, caring for living things, or on the other side, the arrow goes to caring for fabricated things. So that's the split of expertise into two parts. So he leaves caring for living things aside, and then he, because he says that we're gonna look at acquisition. So caring at the, for the fabricated things and breaks down into two things, acquisition and production. So the arrows go two ways. And then from acquisition, there's two arrows, one going for willing exchange or one taking possession with words and actions. And then from there, he goes on to talk about uh, two types of taking possessions with word and word and actions. One is by open combat. uh, The other is by secret hunting and secret hunting, he says, uh, you're looking either for lifeless targets or for living targets. Now, since we're dealing with sophists, the sophist is looking for living targets. And so he says, well, there's two types of living targets. One is aquatic, which interestingly, he puts both fish and birds in the aquatic category, which was an interesting thing I found. He doesn't really explore that too much, but it was an interesting little twist there. So he says, on one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have living targets on land. Uh, and then he further divides the living targets on land between the wild things and the tame things. And so he takes this method and he just continually divides, so he's continually setting up opposites, and he's then following the the line down, but it's always dividing into two. So I think this may reflect what he's said in, you know,, uh, Um, Phaedo and Philibus and a whole bunch of other places that things come to be in opposites. And so if we're continually comparing opposites, uh, somewhere we find that common thread that follows through. And he's he's gone on to say um, there was a paragraph at uh, 221E to 222C about hunting for living things, uh, the visitor says, we divided all hunting into two parts, one for land animals and one for swimming animals. We went through one part about the animals that swim underwater, but we left the land part undivided, though we noted that it contains many types. Up to that point, the sophist and the angler go the same way. So the angler he's used as uh, a simple example, um, non-controversial example, and angler is a hunter. Uh, and, and he's used the the angler to... Give an example of how you divide the expertise of an angler in this way. So at this point, the angler and the and the sophist uh, diverge. So the sophist is um, he says, starting from animal hunting, though they turn away from each other. One goes to ponds, rivers, and the sea, and hunts for the animals there. That's the angler. The other one goes to the land and to different kinds of rivers, which are like plentiful meadow meadows of wealthy youths to take possession of the living things there. Theatida says, what do you mean? Visitor says, there are two kinds of animals to hunt on land, tame things and wild ones. Theatida says, is there any such thing as hunting tame animals? The visitor says, there is if human beings are tame animals at any rate. Make whichever assumption you like. Either there are no tame animals or there are tame animals, but humans are wild, or else you'll say humans aren't hunted. Specify whichever you prefer to say. And Theotetus concludes, I think we're tame animals, and I'll say that humans are in fact hunted. Um, And so then this process of continual division goes on. So this is the the tame uh, that are hunted by the sophist. And one way of hunting is by enslaving or, you know, some form of tyranny that forces the the person to submit to the sophist, and the others by persuasion with words and actions. And then there's that division between public and private. So the the public, as I said, is uh, where where they use controversy, um, and the private is where they use dispute. Uh, so that's two different types of persuasion. And then that's further divided into. Um, persuasion for gifts or persuasion for wages, persuasion for money. And then that's further divided into persuasion for pleasure, or persuasion uh, on account of virtue. And that's where they wind up uh, in the uh, identification of the sophist, is that the sophist is someone who uh, tries to persuade people to their particular view of virtue. And so I wonder what you think about this method of continual division, you know, a way of identifying something, identifying that which we apply a name to, in this case, it's the name expertise, which is what the sophist claims to have. Does this particular method of division, this collection and division, I think is what it's it's formally called, um, does this seem logical to you? Does it seem to be a way that you actually think uh, when you, consider these things? Like when somebody says that they're an expert, would this way of dividing that term expert um, be helpful? Does it make logical sense? Or is there any other way of dividing
3: things? Uh, Moshe, JK, and then Jose. Oh, good. Okay. At,
1: uh, I, I just want to mention the uh, translation that I have At about two twenty-four, B, uh, the stranger is saying the later should have two names: one descriptive of the sale of the knowledge of virtue, and the other the sale of other kinds of knowledge. So the sophist here is peddling knowledge. Uh, He's not peddling. uh, He's not peddling virtue. Uh, At least in my at least in my translation. The other thing is that. Um this kind of, uh, I guess I'll call it dialectic for lack of a better term, uh, where you're bifurcating, you're, you're constantly dividing between uh, uh, two different alternatives, uh, practically locks the mind into a kind of paralysis where the interlocutor is being given these things at such a pace that they don't have time to think of an alternative. Uh, so my question is, for any of these particular things, going back and looking at it reflectively, is there a third option that should be put out there or a fourth option uh, that should be put out there? The last thing that I want to say is that I just get the feeling by, you know, listening to this, you know, that the sophist is hiding, that the stranger is hiding his own sophistry. Uh, I I mean, I'm sure he's hiding his own sophistry under uh, this kind of uh, analysis, because they start out at the beginning by talking about the sophist being, you know, this reprehensible kind of guy uh, or girl. And at the end, they sell virtue, uh, they sell knowledge to people who want to have knowledge and use it in a particular situation. So it is a, a classic example of what Plato calls sophistry, which is starting out with something, uh, it, 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 which is starting out and making the negative into a positive.
0: Interesting. And, and you asked, you know, whether there is a third or fourth option, uh, and I think that's well worth exploring. Um, the part about virtue is around 223a, actually, um, where the visitor says, but doesn't the kind of wagering that actually earns money Though it claims to deal with people for the sacred virtue, deserve to be called by a different name. The Adidas says, "Of course." The visitor says, "What name? Try and tell me." The Adidas says, "It's obvious. I think we found the sophist. I think that's the name that you would that would be suitable for him." Uh, and that's so. That's where they, you know, really try to narrow it down to this uh, uh, to the practice of selling. The, the, that particular concept of virtue to the unsuspecting use, those those meadows of use that he's talking about there. so um, so yeah, I mean, a, a good question, is there a third or a fourth way, or do we do we find this division by two uh, to be adequate? Um, we'll go to J k and Jose and then Darren.
3: so if this is a, if this is a marketplace of uh, ideas or uh, you know then there were uh, that means that um everybody involved in this marketplace right is a producer or consumer right, right. of of things of uh there everybody's that to both make a living and also to um to uh, maybe uh you know um uh, at least you know participate in in the um in the pursuit of um, truth and understanding and knowledge, and so wouldn't that include uh, Socrates as well? Everybody who is in, in the marketplace, even though Socrates is doing it for free, he's, he's not charging, but he's he is also uh, in the um, uh, is also an expert on perhaps on virtue. Um, so how? Uh, at what point is you know is he not a sophist and, and 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 the sophist is not a a sophist but also like Socrates, Because mm-hmm. like, they're they're both you know um, in the marketplace and their their actions are are have some uh, involved in some form of acquisition and production. So yeah, I that, that just wanted to raise that question.
0: I think that's a, that's a great question. What, what differentiates Socrates from the sophist? And um, I'm wondering if it's at close to the beginning here at 217 C where Socrates uh, says this to the stranger. So Socrates only appears at the very beginning of this dialogue, um, he appears actually with Theodorus who's the geometer and then they, Go off to the side, and then the rest of the dialogue is between the visitor and and Theotetus. But so Socrates at 217 C asked the visitor, Tell us this. When you want to explain something to somebody, do you usually prefer to explain it by yourself in a long speech, or do you do it with questions? That's the way Parmenides did at one time when he was very old and I was young. He used questions to generate a very fine discussion. Uh, And I'm wondering if that's part of the answer to the question that you. Raised. I mean, first of all, Socrates wasn't charging for um, distributing knowledge, but he was uh, asking questions, and so he wasn't presenting his own opinion as much as sometimes he did. Kind of lead, uh, lead the uh, his interlocutors down a particular path, but he always gave them a chance to find their own way out. Um, and and you know, we'll, we'll look at. You know that that method of teaching is uh, one later on in this in this section that we're talking about today, where he um, where he says that you know this particular method of teaching, um, as opposed to giving your own opinion, this particular method of teaching allows the person you're talking to to find the contradictions in their own logic. Um, so I don't know if that's if that's an answer, but it's uh, it's a it's a good question, and uh, you know I wonder what other people think about that. Um, We'll go to Jose and Darren, and then Jose
4: Jay. Um, Yeah, I don't have an answer to your, what you were uh, uh, proposing here, uh, James, so I need to think it through. What I raised my hand about is, I was captivated by this method of dividing. And let me tell you why. Um, Do you remember when you were a kid, I think I mentioned this before, you were doing the labyrinths. At one point, you decide, I'm going to start from the end and find my way out, right? Instead of trying to enter through the periphery and trying to get to the middle of the labyrinth. So, good for you. So, then I think about this, and I will, I will make sense of this point in a moment. Uh, then you look at this division. The first thing you can tell is there are arbitrary divisions. I could divide expertise and and decide to divide it into I'm expert on the color red. um, And I'm not expert on anything that is not red. Every division is arbitrary. So then I thought, okay, what are these guys? These guys are in the persuasion business, not in the truth business. So if you want to persuade somebody of something, how will you do it? And I would exactly work backwards. And in fact, in sales, we've used that method before. You work backwards from the moment the client has signed the contract. And then you ask yourself, um, what happened a, a moment before that? Well, either the board approved it or the board did not approve it. That's one division. And you keep dividing. You keep dividing only in two. And then when you look at the chart in front of you, you decide, okay, what's the path to success? So if I were a sophist, I would be doing exactly this to persuade my interlocutor of what I'm trying to get to. So in other words, what I'm saying is this guy has already built this division, has concluded that this division leads him to success in persuasion. And now all he's doing is taking you through the labyrinth path. And when you get to the middle, you say, wow. You're awesome, <laughs> because he already prefabricated the path anyway, that's something that came to mind right away when I saw the method I was more on captivated by the method why why that arbitrary division because it's arbitrary anyway for thought
0: yeah no, and really interesting the analogy to the labyrinth, and um you know i it almost seems that you know the visitor is talking about the labyrinth in our minds you know the the way that we go about um, maybe you know we've talked about the relativity of knowledge before and maybe establishing two different poles to gauge you know the relativity of one thing to another um, is the way Jose that you said maybe that the sophist does things but here uh, the visitor is saying this is how we hunt the sophist so if the sun, if the sophist is using this kind of method, then we can use that same method to hunt the sophists. But, you know, you raised a good question, and I thought about it, too, as I was reading this, is are these divisions necessarily the only divisions that are possible? Uh, and that maybe goes back to Moshe's question, too, about, you know, is there only two ways or is there three ways or four ways that we can divide things? Um, you know, but is is two maybe the most fundamental way that we can divide anything into two and, and then from there we can further divide, but is two the most fundamental way that we can divide things. Um, and and so what if what if these are arbitrary, what does that do? Is there, if, if you choose other arbitrary comparisons, would you still wind up at the same point if you're able to pick out all of the opposites? So it's a, it's a really good question, but I really like that labyrinth analogy. I think it really is helpful. So thank you for that.
4: What I was suggesting here, James, is that mm-hmm. those divisions look arbitrary to me. Mm-hmm. They are not arbitrary to the persuasion the, pers- the person trying to persuade. He already walk
0: the walk, right? right. right. Yeah, and 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 the sales analogy that you used, I, I think, is is very important. Yeah. So if if the if the seller is using an arbitrary method, then maybe the buyer needs to use the arbitrary method as well. So really, really interesting point. So thank you. Uh, we'll go to Darren and then Jose, J and then Moshe. So Darren, welcome to Plato's Pod.
5: Hi, thanks. <laughs> um, so I have a ton kind of thoughts right now. Um, so I'm just going to um, address them by tackling James's most basic question that he posed. At the start of this section, like what we think of this method, um and is it logical? Um, so um I agree with uh, what um Jose just said that um well, first of all i I'll, I'll give a positive about it like I think um when you follow this method of division, um, as James's uh, picture laid out here, you get a very clear picture of your options, and I think it helps you think more precisely i mean if I mean, we get a really precise um, picture of one kind of sophist by the end of this uh, process of division here, right? Like you're able to say all these things about the sophist, although some of them seem pretty like uh, trivial, <laughs> like hunting like land versus sea creatures and stuff like that. So um, so I think that's one, one thing that's positive about it. Um, I think uh, there is like someone raised the question of whether there are third options. I think that's a very serious issue. Um, and I think this method di- division makes most sense when you're saying something is or is not something like that's very clear, like something I, is something or is not something like I think that's where this method actually seems to would seem to work. But here we're not doing that. Right. We're actually saying like substantive things where we're trying to classify things into two categories. And often it's very unclear. It often seems arbitrary, like how he classifies things, like where do lump one thing or another, or even the division itself seems like very blurry. Like, how do we say, um, like, whether something is producing something or not? For instance, the idea of commerce doesn't really produce anything. Well, that's like, that, that, that's disputable, right? Like some people will say, like, exchange, the process of exchange that, you know, we call capitalism now like that does produce new, like that sort of does produce things that you wouldn't have without the system otherwise. So anyway, I like we can can go on disputing these things forever, right? Each of these distinctions. And, but I'm just saying it does seem arbitrary how it's used here, but I think the method, it can be powerful, but maybe not in the way it's being used now. Like, and I think, I think the dialogue eventually like turns to this question of being versus not being. It's interesting that it's not being used in this, um, in this section um, it's just saying whether one thing is one thing is this thing or is this other thing rather than is it rather than asking is the thing this thing or not I think it makes more sense to use this method we're just saying is this thing or not this thing Um, but so the method seems to be being applied a bit like wrong here in a way but I think that might be deliberate on Plato's part Um, maybe he's trying to I haven't finished reading the dialogue only read the assigned reading and few more pages after that but so i'm 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 thinking maybe something like this is coming up mm-hmm. um so sir i'm going a long time here but maybe i'll just make um one more point then um i have so many thoughts as i said <laughs> it's such a rich dialogue i find plato so rich his dialogues um so um this is addressing jose's point about um um right about the arbitrariness and how he mentioned that it's already set um so i agree about as i said i agree somewhat about the arbitrariness at least it's being used in this section um but i disagree that it's like already set and i say this because of this really fascinating thing that was mentioned at um 222b uh, the part that james actually read out loud earlier um so he says so the visitor says you know um there are I'll just read this like short paragraph again. There is if human. Be- OK, so Theotides asks, is there any such thing as hunting tame animals, which is I thought was a funny question. Uh, <laughs> and then the visitor says there is if human beings are tame animals at any rate, make whichever assumption you like. Either there are tame animals or there are no or, or there are tame animals, but humans are wild or else you'll say humans are tame, but aren't hunted. Specify whichever you prefer to say. And then Theotida says, well, I think we're tame animals, and I'll say humans are in fact hunted. So, this is totally fascinating to me, because <laughs> uh, first of all, this method is used in many of the dialogues, right? As we, as we see, as we as you know, as we many of us might know. Um, but here, the visitor who, okay. The, I, I think, personally, I think the visitor is supposed to represent Plato himself. Like, he, Plato never actually appears in any dialogues. Like, I think this is my this is my hypothesis um i I, i'll go i can this is another topic i'll just leave aside for now but i think personally i think the visitor is plato himself like he's he never actually puts himself in the dialogue so this is maybe the as far as he goes but um he hides himself here Mm -hmm. um but to me it's fascinating because if, if if the visitor is plato or even if the visitor isn't plato that that's sort of a side point right now but um the idea that it's up to Theotetus to decide how he wants to draw the distinction. It's fascinating. It's not, so this it doesn't, it means a dialogue, although it's arbitrary in a way, it's not preset, as H- Jose said, that it's not like meant to manipulate him or whatever. Um, because it, it's, it's he's leaving it up to Theotetus how he wants to divide it. And then he'll he'll grab those distinctions and then he'll just keep making more distinctions further down. So this actually sort of emphasizes. Um, the, the that it's arbitrary, right? That it's up to the other person how he wants it. So it actually emphasizes all the more Jose's point that it's arbitrary. But it's it it it. it but it also points out that it's not like it's not like to a preset destination.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, which I think is just a very interesting general um remark about. Method that we see in so many of these dialogues that maybe there's although we're drawing all these distinctions maybe there's maybe there's different ways to get to the same point or maybe you know something else is going on, mm-hmm. so that's that's just my observations for now. Thanks.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And it's um, I mean I think you said a lot of interesting things there. You know, starting with the you know uh, giving a clear picture of options and maybe that's one thing that this does by dividing only by two, uh, it gives a clearer picture than more you know multiples of division. Um, and then I you know I think you you focused you picked up on those words. actually pick whichever you choose. Uh, and maybe that's helpful to understand this method of of collection and division is that you know you can pick whichever two things you want to compare and then just keep working through those comparisons to find some sort of common thread. So maybe that's maybe that's you know some of the power of this um and and you know when you said that you know it's not said in advance, you know I think that's also maybe very helpful to understand this. But I think we still need to grapple with this with this you know potential that it is arbitrary, but maybe you know, as you said, it's it's you know that each of us sees the name in a different way. So each of us thinks about expertise in a different way. And so whenever we do any sort of comparison in some sort of verbal process, which is what the visitor said is, is very important. Like we can't, just, we can't just agree that expert means, you know, something set in advance. We have to work it out. We have to talk it out. We have to arrive at some verbal agreement before there is any understanding of what expert actually is. So,
5: yeah. so I think that
0: was, that was very helpful. Thank you for that.
5: Can I just jump in one more point? Yeah. Um, just a quick point. point. Um, so some of these issues we're, we're concerned about already about the method, um, that James is getting us to think about, um, as, I mean, as we see, for those of who read the dialogue, as we see, like, just like, just after this point, we start going, we revisit these, this trail and we start going down other paths and we find the sophists uh, un, under other paths too. Like, um, so in other distinctions, you can make down these different paths. So maybe that actually solves some of the our misgivings about this method in that you know, this is not the end point. Like you're like, Oh, but the sophist is sort of sometimes does this other thing. And this, this, this these distinctions don't work. Well, maybe, maybe we don't have to be worry about that. If the method also means that we can go, we can go down other trails too and find distinctions elsewhere. Cause we find the sophist down six other trails or five other trails, believe. Um, so maybe that will help us, you know, not be so concerned about these little or about um, these issues that mm-hmm. seem to arise right now. So that's it.
0: Uh, good, good point. So does this? The question is: Does this method give us that flexibility? And and you've raised, you know, the where we end today's reading is where they set out the six different characteristics of a sophist. So uh, so yeah, it's not just one characteristic; it, it's multiple. So well, thank you for that. And and we'll go to Jose and Moshe and J.K.
2: Okay, uh, I, I was just going, uh, wanting to mention that uh, I I read uh, some some commentator about this dialogue, and uh, I, I kind of agree with uh, what he says he says that uh, in this dialogue they are part of the dialogue that the visitor is uh, he's being a sophist in the in the arguments uh, because he because it seems that uh, kind of Plato is making fun of us the reader. Because he's he's using uh, sophist techniques, uh, and especially in this in this part in this part of the dialogue, like uh, he's presenting this, there is a fallacy here. There is the, the fallacy of the false dioptomy, di- dichotomy, that he presents only two choices as possible, and could be another choice. So he forces you to one or the other, and he's 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 guiding you in the in the way. So this is uh, what uh, Jose Ayur said that he's uh, <clears throat> guiding, I agree. Now, in this, in this, uh, in this moment that uh, he says, oh, in the, this land of, uh, to humans, they are wild or tame. Well, here doesn't matter because if he say wild, he says, oh, the humans are wild, but anyway, the, 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 other, the continuation is for humans anyway. So it doesn't matter what he chooses. He will go to humans anyway. If he shows that humans are tame, Humans are wild. so he's conducting the he's conducting the interlocutor as a, as a sophist would do. Anyway, this is one one comment, and, and uh, <clears throat> another thing is what uh, J.K. say about uh, if uh, if uh, if Socrates is a is a sophist. Well, there is a there is a big big difference that they do not mention. Uh, Socrates always, time and time again, he says that uh, he doesn't pretend to know to know anything. Yeah, he's a little bit, uh when <clears throat> he says, that uh, I don't know anything. And, and, and the sophists, they pretend that they know and they don't know. And later in the dialogue, he says that this is the worst thing that can happen. It's not the ignorance. It's the ignorance of of thinking that they know something what they don't really know. I think this is a big difference with Socrates and the, the uh, idea kind of a, uh, at the end of this lecture, not the dialogue, sorry, uh, you mentioned that. So it's, I wanted to mention
0: that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And uh, yeah, that, that part was at 229 C where the visitor says, I think I see a large difficult type of ignorance marked off from the others and overshadowing all of them, not knowing, but thinking that you know, that's what probably causes all of the mistakes we make when we think. Uh, I think that's that's an important point, an important distinction. I think that you raise, Jose. So thank you for that. And in the the idea of of the there's also at two, I think it's around 218, 218 C or D. Um, he's talking about finding the thing itself and not the name. And then at two thirty one A, he says, beware of similarities. Uh, for example. The dog and the wolf uh, are, you know, from the same family or from the same general category of animal, but they're very different. One is wild, the wolf, and then the dog is, is tame. Um, so I think that's maybe trying to illustrate that, you know, being aware of similarities. And, you know, th- this whole process of division um, is really to, uh, I think, to I- identify the, the general from the particulars. So there's all sorts of particulars as you go down this chain, but the general thing is expertise. Uh, and so maybe that's part of what this process is about. So you raised some, some very good thoughts there, thank you. We'll go to uh, Moshe and JK and Jose G and Steve.
2: Mosha.
1: Okay, The um, I don't think uh, I don't think the distinctions that are being made here are arbitrary, uh, but I do think that the divisions that are being made here are self-serving. And um the the person who's making the distinctions is making these distinctions so he can prove his own point. And I think that the thing that Aaron pointed out, and you did too, James. Um At 222, um, yes, uh, if you include man under tame animals, well, that's a huge generalization all by itself. But if you like, you may say that there are no tame animals, or that if there are, man is not among them. Or you may say that man is a tame animal, but he is not hunted. You shall decide which of these alternatives you prefer. The sophist. I think we have to be sensitive to the, to the, to the histrionics that are apparent here. There's a drama going on here. And the drama is in words. And the sophist is saying, you, you shall decide which of these alternatives you prefer. He could have concluded that by saying, it doesn't matter to me because I'm going to get my point regardless. If you want to accept this, fine. If you don't want to accept that, fine. We'll simply go. uh, I'll simply go whatever way you suggest because I'm still going to get to the same. The second thing that I want to observe about this is that if we want to test this analysis, one way of doing it is running it backward. Can I go from the distinction between for pleasure and for virtue, and get all the way back to the angler? I mean, we started out with the angler, and we and from the angler we've gone all the way down. this thing about teaching knowledge of virtue. Well, if this is a good analysis, I should be able to to show how I can go backward every step and get back to, to, um, you know, to Joe who's standing in the stream with his uh, hip boots on. But if I can't get back there, if I get back to Sally or if I get back to to a a giraffe, my analysis breaks down. So I, I, I just want to point out those two things that that the sophist, that the stranger is a sophist and it doesn't matter to him which direction you go. And that if you want to, if you want to understand his, his analysis, try working backwards. if you can get from knowledge to virtue to the end. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a, that's a really uh, interesting idea that working backward. Um, so that this analysis should work both ways forward and backward. Uh, I think that's really I think that's really fascinating that maybe just talking about the process of logic, like logic should work any way you you run it. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if the division in two helps with that uh, or not. Uh, but I think we're still, you know, contending with whether these divisions are uh, appropriate or whether there's other divisions that could be made. Um, and you know, as as you asked, is the is the visitor a sophist himself? Uh, even though he's not charging for this, uh, he's not charging any money. But is he trying to take possession, uh, or is he trying to acquire uh, somebody's thoughts uh, through actions and words? So I think that's a point that we need to uh, we need to address. It's, a, it's an important point. In, in
2: some parts of the dialogue, he acts as a sophist, but not mm-hmm. in other parts. In other parts. Of- right very be logical, right? They are, so this is why this uh, this idea that uh, that Plato is playing with us, uh, having some sometimes a visitor behaving as a as a sophist, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. very serious, visits. because he's a philosopher. He's not right. presented as a as a sophist, as a right. philosopher, following Parmenides.
5: Right. Can, can Can I just jump in with a uh, uh, remark on that comment? Just a quick remark. Mm-hmm. um i just yeah so uh jose was just saying that like sometimes he's being logical so he's not being a sophist um so he's saying that there's different sort of modes of discussion that goes on that will happen in this dialogue which happens in i think in, in almost all the dialogues you see different modes of discussion with Socrates. um so uh my point then is that uh, it's just that well that distinction doesn't really identify who's a philosopher or a sophist in, in my view because you'll i think you'll see that in some of many of the dialogues featuring sophists like gorgias and uh protagoras and so on uh, or hippias um that they that sophists n- know how to use logic too in fact they're quite clever about using reason and logic but somehow not quite the way the philosopher should be using uh logic and logical distinctions and analysis so sophists it's not like sophists can't can't be logical. In fact, the danger of sophistry and sophists is that they, they they are actually very smart people. Like Protagoras is supposed to be like if if you read Protagoras, you see that he um, he's actually in a way admired in a way. He's like he's supposed to be one of the greatest sophists. um He's he's a brilliant person. And um but so so that's all I want to say. Like I agree that there's there's something to do with like uh, the philosopher, something to do with reason, but the relationship. Um, between the philosopher and reason and how we draw the distinction between a philosopher and sophists is got is pretty blurry actually when, when logic is that logic is an issue.
0: Hmm. And that's a good point. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's- well, the,
2: the, the, the philosopher, well, there's a distinction there later as well in the dialogue that the main distinction, yes, I know both, we can use logic and they are smart and everything, but the main huge difference is that the philosopher goes after the truth. And the and the the sophists they go to win the arguments or or to like to uh, manipulate people mm-hmm. by persuasion. That's mm-hmm. the big difference. So I know that they are smart. And mm-hmm. now another thing is that uh, that uh, I think Plato in, in the dialogue, he respects a lot, especially Georgias and, and Protagoras. I, I, I read more dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, there are many other sophists that they are like really bad. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that uh, SOFAs are not all necessarily that bad, but uh, um, certainly this process of dialogue and reaching some verbal agreement is very critical to whatever uh, viewpoint that we're going to examine. So that that's something that uh, is made very clear at the beginning of this dialogue. Uh, <clears throat> we'll go to JK and Jose G and then
3: Steve. Yeah, I think this is a very naturalistic and logical chain of division. And so there I think it goes to show that there's really no distinction, or you can't see a clear distinction in this kind of um between a sophist and the philosopher. And it's to show that they both are expertise, but they have expertise. And maybe they're both uh, relying on the using the methods that are you know similar in argumentation. And um but the um, so, but the main difference is, is that uh, you know the purpose. What is the purpose of the sophist, right? And um, both uh, the philosopher and the you know sophists may be um, making a living, right? Um, they're both making a living. Of course, Socrates is not, but um, uh, but he is a uh, an expert, and he is kind of participating in the marketplace. Uh, and, and and he is um, uh, doing, uh, you know, uh, practicing this kind of acquisition, right? Uh, hunting, uh, hunting of um, of um, of youth, right? And so, what is the difference? Uh, the, it comes. Uh, the difference is really just tells us at the end that the the sophist is in it for, you know, for pleasure, and the philosopher is distinct from that because he's in a virtue and basically that's the that's the dividing line between the between what the you know um between the sophist and and the philosopher the philosopher is is concerned with what is above the dividing line right uh the, the sophist um is um is in this uh, below the dividing line of uh, of uh you know, uh, doing what he's doing for the purpose of pleasure, mm-hmm. and I I think that's uh, that that's the that's what this you know this chain of division shows. Mm-hmm. One is for virtue, the other one is for pleasure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for pleasure, and I guess for money as well. And uh, you know, maybe it's a a question again of whether virtue can in fact be taught. You know, and and the Sophist claims to be able to teach virtue. But as I asked in the introduction, where did the sophist learn virtue in the first place, and what qualifies him to, to teach virtue? So it's um, it's an important question. Um, we'll go to Jose G. and then Steve and then Darren. This, uh,
4: this is such an interesting topic that I don't know where to start from. Um, but a couple a couple of things. The um, if you if I am a sophist. And James, you are a, a philosopher. Uh, we would approach the same question from two different angles. If I'm a sophist, I would do exactly this. I would say, How can I convince the audience of point A? I was, and I would start from the middle of the labyrinth and find my way out, and then uh, then make my argument that way. I would say, Well, let's split this in two. Because as I said, it's already a prefabricated. Path that would lead me to success. However, you, James, you will start from the other end. If you are the philosopher, you will start with a question that says, um, "Is getting paid for persuasion virtuous?" So that's the way of the philosopher. It will start from the end, but not from the end. It will start from the beginning. Sorry, from the key question. Whereas the sophist would start for how do I get this person to believe. A, or B, or C. If you analyze the argument of both, let's say we both go to the marketplace under the porticus, and I speak first, and then you speak next, James, and somebody there listening, like Jose Jacob, who start analyzing, okay, let, let's see what this guy said versus the other guy said, and you will find three clear differences. That me, as a sophist, use three tricks. One, um, sorry, not three tricks, I used um, fallacious arguments and James as Socrates did not. I use emotion, right? I, I ripped my shirt apart and I, I mean, cry and uh, whatever. I used emotions to persuade, whereas James didn't use logic. And to the point that Daring was mentioning, I don't believe that the, the sophists were very smart but I don't believe they were logical. They couldn't be. Right? They couldn't be logical because they used all these fallacious arguments that appear to be true, right? So they couldn't be, I mean, they, they are, I'm sure if you ask them, give me the good logic of this, he would say, well, James, come over here. I in secret, I would tell you really what the right logic is, and you would agree with him. But in public, they paid me to convince the audience to believe this. So, therefore, I had to do that. Anyway, that's a, a comment, <laughs> but well, this is an interesting topic.
0: Yeah, you know, for for sure, and, and certainly, you know, the, the illogic in the in the argument of the sophists um, is something that I think we're being told we have to be careful of here, and certainly the emotion that you, you mentioned, um, and, and this uh, method of controversy that the that the sophist will engage in to um, propel people to to his position uh, I think is something that one has to be aware of and and you made a, an interesting point Jose about you know starting at the end versus starting at the beginning the philosopher starts at the beginning with the question and the sophist starts at the end with the goal which is you know something I think similar to what uh, JK was saying that, you know, it's, it's the end goal of the, uh, of the sophist that, uh, that's important here. So, so, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and we'll go to Steve and then Darren. Um,
6: I don't uh, see a lot of difference between uh, the method the sophists using and the method that, uh, Socrates uses. I think that, um, what I'm noticing is perhaps um, a cognitive bias that uh, we're we're come at it right away with the idea that sophists is bad. So we're looking at a lot of the negative qualities of the sophists' argument. Um, Sophists is selling, in my view, a tool. And it's a tool on how to be uh, persuasive and well, he's using a lot of the methods that, uh, I mean, the exact same methods that Socrates used. And uh, like Socrates was looking at the difference between tall and short, between physical and mental. And it wasn't the, uh, you know, this whole collection, division and collection. So it's um, not the, uh, you know, we didn't pick apart to the same degree what. Socrates was saying, although we did talk quite a while about tallness and, and trying to get into that. But I think that there's a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the what the, and, and Socrates often uh, uses some uh, devices in order to prod people along. He plays devil, devil's advocate all the time. He's uh, dumb like a fox, as they say, um, or smart like a fox, whichever the The correct statement is, but he'll 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 uh, act like he knows less, and he'll try to goad on. So he's using all of these rhetorical tools. So just because if they, um, it's just compared to selling a knife. It's sell a knife, and somebody could use it. uh, A surgeon can use it to help save people's lives, or somebody could use it to stab and kill somebody. So a lot of just wanted to, to from my viewing of the dialogue is uh, not to get this the old phrase don't confuse your finger with the moon at the moon when you're pointing at the moon you don't want to be looking at the finger and talking about the fingers the idea is the moon so I think that the the the, the um, focus is on uh, point that the, the Sophist in this case is trying to make or Plato's trying to make through the Sophist, is is not that the whether the sophists' trade is good or bad it's what the ideas the philosophical ideas that they're uh, examining.
0: Thanks. And that's an important point I think Steve to understand actually that um it, it's not that uh, Plato is trying to say that the sophist is good or bad. What, uh, what they're trying to do here is to actually hunt the sophist, to, to identify the sophist so that at least we know what we're dealing with. Um, and then we can decide whether the sophist is good or bad. But it, the important thing is to know, you know what we're dealing with. Uh, and, and that's because it's more important to know what a thing is than to know the name of the thing. So somebody is an expert. Well, that's the name that's applied to somebody. But what is that actual expertise? And that's, that's the focus. And I think that was a very helpful point that you made about that is to understand the focus. And here they're trying to hunt the sophist to identify the sophist. And then they can assess uh, whether the, the knowledge that is being sold is, is, um, is good knowledge or bad. So thank you for that. Um, we'll go to Darren and the Moshe.
5: I like what you just said there, James, about the uh, point about um, we're not just interested in the words, but what they actually are. Um, so it, we, we I, I think that that's a potential confusion when we look at this method, when we're just seem to be just dissecting words. Um, but there's always this effort to try to get back to the, you know, to the actual substance of things. Um, so again, I have so many thoughts, but. Um, um, I think I'll just uh make a general comment about um what we've been discussing, um the distinction between a sophist and the philosopher. And um so um I'll just say one thing in response to um something someone said earlier about how um the sophist like makes oh yeah, right. I, I mentioned so I mentioned before how I think the sophist um, does use logic and reason, and that's what makes them dangerous. and um and that's what makes people fall for them. Um, And I think someone remarked that um they disagreed because the sophist, um, it's a philosopher. Like the sophist actually makes what seems like arguments, but they're fallacious arguments. And the philosopher is the one who you know who has like who's using logic and argumentation correctly. Um, so I, I just want to point out this observation, though, like, okay, and this comes back to, what i think the difficulty of drawing the distinction and i think this difficulty is recognized by plato and it's recognized in this very dialogue at various points that it's actually very hard to draw the distinction although i think plato is convinced there is a distinction and i think most of us are convinced there's a distinction because there are people like sophists out there and um and i think the distinction is obvious when you look at like very uh like unintelligent sophists the more vain sophists like i i if you've never read the hippias dialogues i I highly recommend them the two hippias dialogues because they're hilarious because hippias is a really dumb sophist and he just makes the you know he does definitely make errors all the time but this is not always the case with sophists like sophists are different they're not one person and they don't they have different personalities some of them are more vain than others some of them actually seem to you know have like something like virtue um, even if you know they 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 wouldn't um even if um yeah they they, they you know they seem to be good people in a way i think Protagoras is a good example of that um and some of them are really intelligent um and so so and I th- so i think the distinction doesn't um really hold because um in the hippiest minor i was tr- actually trying to find this quote so i'm sort of frazzled right now i, I wasn't i wasn't successful but in this hippias minor socrates actually says so that dialogue is about lying and how it's possible like to lie or not to lie and um and what is a lie and um and hippias and socrates actually admits to being uh, um saying wrong things or saying lies all the time and how difficult it is to not say lies and how and i think this this points to how like even someone who is a philosopher will make mistakes all the time, and this is something Socrates also admits in that dialogue that he like he makes mistakes all the time. Like it's it's so easy to in philosophy that you think you you made a right analysis, you think you made a right distinction, but actually someone else. If anyone's you know if you've been in a philosophy classroom, you'll see you'll see how easy it is for someone to point you. Oh, but you know you can think about this other way, and then you, you know, it seems like you might be wrong after all. So it's it, philosophy is hard and um and so even the philosopher would make mistakes and make fallacious arguments all the time so this isn't and and socrates even says as much in the hippias meyer so um so like so i'm i I just want to point out like how much how much blurrier like how really how hard this distinction really is and um and how like just looking at how logical they are like won't really help i think because some some philosophers make mistakes all the time and sophists it can be very logical. That's how they convince people. Even sometimes they even fool philosophers. Um, so um, like some people, I think like some people call David Hume a sophist. I think what's um, a famous paper by modern, it's called Modern... Um, moral philosophy, but if, oh, Anscombe, Elizabeth Anscombe, like he, they're out, she, de- she outright declares in that paper, in that very famous paper, that David Hume is a sophist. David Hume, the philosopher, she thinks is a sophist. Okay, so this just goes to tell you that you know, like these words, it's very hard to like um, tell. And uh, so I'll just, so just one last thing I will say quickly on on page three of the dialogue. Let's see, that's my page three. So that's so this is the very beginning of the dialogue. Ah, uh, at two. 216 c um so here like this is sort of explicit in this very dialogue itself how like the philosopher also hides like the sophist so I, i just really like this quote in general so socrates says um and that's the right thing for you to do um my friend but probably it's no easier i imagine to distinguish that kind of person than it is to distinguish gods um, so, they're talking about philosophers here, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, certainly, the genuine philosophers who haunt our cities, by contrast to the fake ones, take on all sorts of different appearances just because of other people's ignorance. As philosophers look down from above at the lives of those below them, some people think they're worthless, and others think they're worth everything in the world. Sometimes they take on the appearance of statesmen, and sometimes of sophists. Sometimes, too, they might give the impression that they're completely insane, but it's all right with a visitor. I'll be glad to have him tell us what the people where he comes from used to apply the following names to. Okay, and then they go on to their uh, discussion. But here, like it's it's this totally fascinating point here, how the sophist might actually seem insane to some people and um, and appear and sometimes appears to be a statesman, sometimes appears to be a sophist himself. So I, I think. Again, this is just emphasizing the point that, like, you know, how it's very hard to tell the difference, and um, and how um, actually, in the dialogue preceding this one, so the state, so this is the Sophist, the dialogue, the one that's it's supposed to be part of a trilogy. I think that I think Theaetetus came before, in the Theaetetus, there's this in right, almost right in the middle of that dialogue, in that very long dialogue, uh, Socrates talks about how the so- this the philosopher, like describes how the philosopher could appear crazy and insane to other people. Hmm. So the, That's another great point. Uh, That's another great place to look.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And and certainly, you know, understanding the appearance of something versus what something actually is. uh, That that was a good quote that you raised just from the beginning there. And I'd make the point here too, there's a section at 230A um, that we'll maybe get to in a a few minutes uh, that I wanted to cover. And that's the idea of teaching, you know, there's a few different ways of teaching. Um, And I think, one of them addresses what you were talking about there in the the idea of um, of following logical consistency um, to identify uh, whether we're dealing with a sophist or not so that that's something that we'll get to but I wanted to raise that in the context of the presentation of the soul in this dialogue so that's maybe the section that we could look at next so uh, but thank you for that and we'll go to Moshe and Jose G and then JK. Yeah, I just
1: want to emphasize what Darren just said at that first section. Homer is saying that, that these spirits hover over the cities, and they sometimes appear as philosophers' statements, statesmen's, or sophists. But what he's saying there, just to be clear, is that a true philosopher can be mistaken for a sophist. He can be mistaken for a um, uh a statesman, and he can even be mistaken uh, for a philosopher. The another point in the text, and also in the analysis, is that is that uh, I'm concentrating on on the word hunt. That that uh, you know the 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 stranger is talking about hunting, and he's talking about secret hunting and open combat, and he has lifeless targets and living targets, and Hunting is equivocal, okay, James, you used it in a different sense a few minutes ago when you were talking about hunting as discerning or identifying. But there's another kind of hunting, too, which is just purely acquisition. You know, you take the you know the guy with the bow and arrow out in the the uh, out in the field and he's trying to get some dinner and he shoots the rabbit, okay? He's trying to acquire that rabbit. he's not he's not identifying it. So I think we have to be, when we're using the word uh, when we're using the word hunting and I, I want to bring that back to the distinction that we're trying that we're struggling with here and it, it, it's at least helpful to me and maybe it's helpful to other people too between the sophist who we are trying to identify and Socrates who we have at least given the titular title of a, of a philosopher and the distinction between the two of them uh, is in how they approach things. For one thing, it says in the dialogue that the sophist uh, is a hunter for the youth. He's looking for crowds of people who he can persuade. Okay, and Socrates never hunted out anybody. The youth were attracted to him and they flocked to him voluntarily. He wasn't looking for them. The second thing is that uh, the sophist has knowledge for sale. It says at two twenty four. Um, one is descriptive of the sale of knowledge of virtue, and the other the sale of of other kinds of knowledge. So the the the, uh, the sophist is selling knowledge, and Socrates never claimed to have knowledge. In fact, he went to uh, to great lengths to uh, dispute the oracle, who said that he was the wisest of all men. So those two things help me keep in mind the difference between a philosopher and a sophist. And maybe there are no true philosophers except for Socrates, but I think that's helpful in understanding what's going on this time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you said is very helpful, too, you know, the, that the philosopher understands... Um... The philosopher understands his limits and his ignorance, I guess, to acknowledge that, whereas the sophist doesn't acknowledge uh, his ignorance uh, or the things that he doesn't know. I think that's that's an important distinction to make and I think very helpful. Um, we'll go to Jose G and then JK.
4: Yeah, I will uh, pass, uh, James. I heard a lot
0: about what I wanted to mention. OK, so. All right. thank you. We'll
3: go to JK then. Yeah, I want to reinforce um, Darren's point about uh, this kind of uh, inability to uh, distinguish between a sophist and a philosopher and that the sophist could very well be someone who's, um, who has a different point of view, right? About, um, about what, is, uh, what is truth, right? And so, of course he's uh, making a living you know, and uh, today we go to uh, universities and we have to pay money for uh, you know for knowledge, right? To learn. Uh, are are the professors who are getting paid to to teach us, you know, um, supposedly what the truth is? Are they are they sophists, or are they philosophers, right? So the distinction is not that clear, and you know this. Um, notion of the sophist is one point of view, but if you were at that time, you know, at that time, the, you know, Socrates was, uh, was condemned, you know, for corrupting the youth, and he was seen as a sophist. Hmm. So maybe at that time, uh, uh, where he was in the marketplace, you know, there was no, it was difficult to make that distinction. And of course, uh, Socrates claimed that, you know, well, he doesn't really know. No, but at the same time, he's also um, leading uh his um followers you know to a certain certain uh, kind of truth right about the soul about the about the virtue and uh, and about pleasure and so forth and so there are philosophers who are who are who are uh, taking the point of view that um you know um, that is very distinct from uh you know uh, plato's uh point of view about virtue you know perhaps pleasure uh <clears throat> is a kind of um, is, a, is a is a certain truth that um that we can't really dispute right uh sigmund freud he was a <clears throat> this you know first psychologist uh wrote uh, very philosophically and he's uh, he was advocating a uh, this point of view that uh you know the pleasure principle is uh, what's uh, you know what it's all about, and uh, so is was Freud a, a sophist of sorts, um, you know? But so I think that you know that that's a good um, that's a good argument uh, that there is no really no distinction no or no clear distinction between a philosopher and a sophist. Uh, look at the, all the different philosophers that have come after or before Plato. Heraclitus and Parmenides and all the ones after, you know, who um who have different points of view. Um, are they all sophists because they had a different point of view of what virtue or truth is? Um, so yeah. I think that's a that's a very good point to Darren made. I agree with that. And,
0: and yeah, definitely something that we need to Come to grips with you know where is what what is the dividing line between philosopher and sophist? Um, and you mentioned J.K. that Socrates was condemned for corrupting the youth. And there's a, I guess there's a bit of an irony here in this that the that the sophist is the, the visitor is saying that the sophist may be corrupting the youth. And, you know the sophist is going out and hunting in these meadows of wealthy youths, um, selling a product that isn't necessarily um, a good product. So. Uh, I, th- I think there's a bit of irony in that, uh, that because Socrates was condemned for that, at least Socrates acknowledged his ignorance. Um, so uh, we'll go to Jose J. And then I've got a reading on the screen here. If everybody can see it, so maybe we'll do this reading afterwards. But um, Jose,
2: yeah, yes, yeah, a couple of points. Uh, <clears throat> uh, one thing is that uh, basically. Uh, he was uh, Socrates was condemned, and the, for being a sophist, and he wasn't a sophist, but he was condemned, as, as James mentioned before. Well, another big, big distinction that, uh, between the the like philosopher and the well, the philosopher, considering Plato, and um, <clears throat> and the the sophists is that the the sophists they were uh, subjectivists in the sense. That they 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 uh, they claim that uh, any everybody can have a different concept of virtues. Like uh, examples of that, you can see, in the, for example, in the Republic, in Book One, when he asked for what is the definition of justice, and there is this—I uh, don't remember the name—Taramacus. Taramacus is a is a big, like a, he's a sophist, and he has concept that uh, is whatever is is good for me. This is justice. I don't care. And so they have this concept that you can teach people to have their own concept of, of virtues. And as an opposite, like Plato, he was a he was a objectivist. So the theory of the forms, for sure, like a you know, the concept of justice is only one and it's universal. You cannot have different concept of justice according to whatever I want to think, mm. and even sell this idea. That was another. Huge difference of uh, between
0: philosophers and and sophists. And thanks for the use of that that term, subjectivist. You know, and maybe this is part of. You know, I asked at the beginning what uh, you know if there's examples of modern sophistry, uh, and maybe you know those who say that anybody's ideas are of the same value as anybody else's ideas. That Concept is maybe out there now that may not be the case, right? It's it's not just because somebody has an idea doesn't make that idea equally valid to anybody else's idea. Uh, and you use the example of uh, of justice from the Republic that we we discussed, and uh, you know I think that's maybe a good example is that you know that's something that we need to talk about and reach some sort of agreement in a process of dialectic uh and just because somebody has a view of what justice is doesn't make that view uh equally valid to anybody else's view so that that's i think the point that or one of the key points that's being made in this dialogue is that it has to be the word you know whether it's justice or something else needs to be discussed and agreed upon it just we we can't just take it for granted that it means something that uh that it's completely subjective so thank you for that um we'll go to motion J.K. then
1: I have to take issue with what J.K. said uh, about philosophers and sophists. Um, first of all, I want to point out that uh, the university, the modern university, has ruined philosophy. Philosophy was never meant to become what we know as academic philosophy in the modern university. Philosophy was something that was handed down from master to student uh, You know, for a, a very long time, uh, thousands of years. And it was not something that has been perverted into um, a scientific model where you have to publish new research in philosophy as if there's as if the idea that we could have philosophical breakthroughs uh, is anything but laughable. Uh, the idea that because philosophers have different points of view. Uh, to identify them as sophists, or to question whether that's sophistry, because they have different points of view, is like questioning whether Aristotle and Newton were both scientific because they had different points of view about what gravity was. And the same thing for Einstein and Heisenberg because they had a different idea about how the universe unfolded. Does that make them? Does that make them non-scientists? Does that make them non-physicists? Absolutely not. So I'm, I'm just um, it. To me, that 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 kind of distinction, I I, I think, is un, un, unfair, um, um, and so it, it, uh, I apologize for uh, pressing a hot button, but it did, and I and I, I wanted to express it. Mm.
0: Thanks, and and we can explore that. And and certainly, the idea of um, you know the modern teaching of philosophy is something that I think is worthy of discussion. I'd I'd like to learn more about how it's approached, you know, because I'm not. I'm not schooled in philosophy, I'm just an amateur philosopher, Uh, but I, I wonder whether a lot of sophistry now is enabled by the fact that knowledge is being split up into so many different areas, different categories of knowledge. And because in the ancient times, the philosopher was, you know, a bit of a polymath, you know, knew all sorts of different areas of knowledge and was able to combine them. Whereas now, you know, knowledge of math and knowledge of geometry and knowledge of history and knowledge of language and all of those different pieces of knowledge are uh, spread among you know people of different expertises. And um, so, you know, maybe a thought that we can explore, too, is just is knowledge being divided too finely now um, to really be able to pinpoint who the experts are in these. So so thanks for that uh, point. And we'll go to JK.
3: Yeah, I wanted to, you know, just, um, add on to the, um, add that the, um, this distinction is not, uh, is very difficult, right? To, to be made between sophistry and, uh, true, uh, philosophy. And like you said that, um, you know, it, it's really more complicated today. So that you, um, you need to also have an understand, some understanding of science, yeah, dismiss science, but at the same time, uh, science can also lead you down uh, a rabbit hole of um, of uh, you know uh, detail and um, and um, you know expertise that you would never be able to you know um, perhaps master and and um, get your head around. Mm-hmm. But the uh, so it, it is a difficult uh, thing you know to distinguish because there are so many different. Points of view, points of philosophy, of different philosophies that, that uh, are divergent uh, from one another. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, so you wouldn't call someone a, a sophist just because their point of view disagreed with yours, or, or you know, right? Uh, but you have to also uh, make the, uh, you know, have some understanding of the differences, right? And be able to, um, see what the relationships are in order to, to, to tell whether it's a, a true point of view that can help you understand what the, you know, what the ultimate truth is, you know, so, um, yeah, so an example was someone like, uh, Kant's, Kant's philosophy, um, where he says that you can't know the truth because it's, uh, it's out of your uh, ability of, you know, a reason. To understand what the truth is, right—the thing in itself, the reality. At the same time, you depend on your reason to determine what the truth is, and your reason can can judge your reasons understanding that the truth uh, that you can't understand what the truth is. So it's a it's a kind of a you know it's very very it's it's very difficult, and I'm not saying it's a simple thing to because there's so many you know. Uh, you know, uh, different philosophies that you have to grapple with.
0: And I think you raised an important point in that we need to understand the differences, and maybe that's a key thing, you know, certainly a theme that goes through Plato is uh, the distinction between the same and the different. And if we don't know what a thing is, maybe looking at the differences, you know, to go back to what Jose G. I think, said earlier, uh, to take opposing viewpoints and find the differences and then somehow reconcile those differences. And I think that seems to me a little bit what they're trying to do with the method of collection and division here. So so we'll, uh, we'll go to Jose G and then let's let's do this reading, I think, that I've got on the screen here. So Jose.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to mention the, about what you just said and what uh, JK said. Yeah, it is definitely difficult to distinguish uh, different point of views. But it is difficult if you're looking or intending to find who to believe. And that is difficult if you want to choose one. And that's where this method that I was describing and that James just uh, recalled, that um, it's not a matter of choosing who to believe. It's a matter of understanding one argument, understanding the other argument, and see if you can discern, in your opinion, who has better arguments. So it boils down, believe it or not, to being a critical thinker in areas where it matters. You cannot be a critical thinker on everything that you read in a newspaper. That that would make sense. But in things that really matter to you individually, you collect points of view, uh, mainly opposite point of views, and if you really want to form your own informed opinion, you do use critical thinking and decide who has better arguments. And the number of matters, it doesn't matter. It's not that important. And I remember one thing I read, a couple of things, a couple of mundane comments that people make sometimes about, well, let's agree to disagree. You probably have heard of that when you're discussing something. and At one point, somebody proposed Let's agree to disagree. And I say, well... That's what I call epistemic irresponsibility. You haven't gotten anywhere. Why do you start with? Why did you start discussing it anyway? I think both parties are responsible to say, okay, let's stop here. We'll continue this discussion. I think I need to to read more about this. You need to read more about that. Let's continue the discussion to try to find the best informed judgment because trying to find the truth, the ultimate truth, is probably uh, difficult. If not impossible, but you can always have a more informed opinion. So yes, there are point of views. Yes, there are professor, the university. Yes, all the philosophers have different point of views. That doesn't mean that you cannot have your own. That's all I'm saying. I mean, you, but it boils down to this is what I was trying to say in different words. If we focus on the claim, the claim of one philosopher versus the claim of the other philosopher, then it's like a food fight right? because. You say, I don't agree with that. Well, I don't agree with that. So then what, what, what's next? It's only a few punches or a few insults. But if you say, okay, I got it. Now, what makes him believe? In other words, what is his argument? And what is your argument? Then we don't need to throw pizzas at each other. We can, okay, well, let me now be responsible for my take on this thing. Because when you, when you debate claims or assertions or conclusions or therefores, you're just into in a food fight. You have to go back to the argument, just to reinforce that point that uh, I mentioned at the beginning. Just, just get to opposing arguments and analyze them.
0: I think you said that well, Jose. That um, you know, critical thinking requires that we understand each other and engage in this process of dialectic that um, is being proposed here. Uh, you know that. And, and, you know, the food fights that you talked about, I think we see that a lot today. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, example of modern sophistry might be some of these cable news commentators, you know, that uh, say, mine is the only correct point of view, and this is the way you should think, Uh, you know, and they're being paid a lot of money for this. um, And they don't tolerate other opinions. And I think that's where uh, the whole thing that needs to be opened up and that we hear each other's points and, you know, as, uh, as J.K., I think, was saying earlier, you know, just to understand the differences and to be able to, you know, be willing to reconcile those differences.
4: Um, reminds me, if I may, James, you remind me of a funny anecdote uh, that says if you are debating an argument and you have a good argument, you have good, solid evidence for your facts, Says, says, well, use your argument. If your argument is weak, right, or not well researched, start screaming. Start raising your voice. Start screaming, get louder, get more threatening. If you definitely don't have the facts or the arguments, he says, well, jump on the table and start accusing the other guy of being a communist or a, a traitor or, or uh, whatever, right? So that's the three degrees of, uh, uh, I guess, of persuasion. Anyway, and, and yeah.
0: That's, so the, the, that's a good point. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so the uh, the the facts of matter, right? So you do have to take a kind of a uh, a scientific, you know, uh, method. Use a scientific method to uh, for your arguments. At the same time, you know, science is also uh, saying things that are very, um, you know. Uh, very maybe sophisticated you know, when they claim that uh, well there's no free will because everything is determined you know and then you have to question you know well you know uh, and look for those other that other point of view which which claims that you know there is free will there are philosophers that say that uh, that posit that there is a free will and, and there, here's the arguments for it you know so
0: and I think you know certainly, as Jose was saying, if you if you uh, feel the strength in your argument, then you shouldn't be afraid to uh, debate civilly with others and present your point. It's uh, I think we we have to understand that and keep that in mind. That uh, yeah, I think those who scream loudest are the ones who are probably least convinced of their own position. Um, so I've got this reading, we've only got, you know, a little bit less than 20 minutes left here, but uh, I've got this reading uh, from 227E to 228E on the screen. I don't know if, if everybody can see this on the screen. Um, yes. And the idea, one of the things in here that struck me was this word proportion. So in this section, it's talking about the the nature of the soul and two kinds of badness that affect the soul. So again, this this notion of two again. Um, and the visitor starts to say, we we have to say that there are two kinds of badness that affect the soul. One is like bodily sickness, and the other is like ugliness. The, Theotius says, I don't understand. The visitor says, presumably you regard sickness and discord as the same thing, don't you? You think that discord is just dissension among things that are naturally of the same kind and arises out of some kind of corruption? Theotius says, yes. The visitor says, and ugliness is precisely a consistently unattractive sort of disproportion. Theotida says, yes. visitor goes on, well, then don't we see that there is dissension in the souls of people in poor condition between beliefs and desires, angers and pleasures, reasons and reason and pain, and all of those things with each other? Theotida says, absolutely. visitor says, but all of them do have to be akin to each other. So we'd be right if we said that wickedness is discord and sickness of the soul. The says is absolutely right. The visitor says, well then suppose something that's in motion aims at a target and tries to hit it, but on every try passes by it and misses. Are we going to say that it does not, that it does this properly because it's properly proportioned or because it's out of proportion? The is out of proportion, obviously. And the visitor goes on, but we do know that no soul, no soul is willingly ignorant of anything. ignorance occurs precisely when a soul tries for the truth but swerves aside from understanding and so is beside itself. So we have to take it that an ignorant soul is ugly and out of proportion. Then there are, it appears, these two kinds of badness in the soul. Most people call one of them wickedness, but it's obviously a disease of the soul. They call the other one ignorance, but if it occurs only in a person's soul, they aren't willing to agree that it's a form of badness. And so you know, this may bring us back to some of the discussion that we had when we looked at the phaedo and the nature of the soul. One thing that interested me in here was the word proportion, proportion and disproportion, and it appears five times in this section. Um, And it made me think about that method of collection and division in that everything is being divided by two. So everything is in equal portions. Um, And here he's saying that if the soul gets out of proportion, maybe losing its balance. This is what causes badness in the soul. Uh, so there's both loss of proportion um, and, um, and discord. So discord is uh, you know, being out of balance with itself. Um, and you know this, this is one of the things that he's warning about uh, is that the soul can be corrupted by these discord and being out of proportion. And then he goes on at 2.30, and i just read this section at 2:38. It's, it's short. Uh, and this is the method of teaching that can get around this, um, to, that can help to cure this discord um, and this being out of proportion. Um, he says, uh, so the visitor says at 2.30a, or one, one part of the kind of teaching that's done in words is a rough road and the other part is smoother. One of them is our forefathers' ta- time-honored method of scolding and or gently encouraging. They used to employ it, especially on their sons, and many still use it on them nowadays when they do something wrong. Admonition would be the right thing to call all of this. So that's one, one method of teaching by admonition. Uh, and then he says, as for the other part, some people seem to have an argument to give themselves that lack of learning is always, an in- that is always lack of learning is always involuntary. And that if someone thinks he's wise, he'll never be willing to learn anything about what he thinks he's clever at. And I think we see examples of that now, uh, that if somebody thinks he's wise, he'll never be willing to learn anything about what he thinks he's clever at. These people think that uh, though admonition is a lot of work, it doesn't do much good. Uh, And then he goes on to say that, um, so then cross-examining someone when he thinks he's saying something uh, though he's saying nothing, uh, since his opinions will vary inconsistently, uh, this cross-examination process of teaching is one way that will reveal that illogic uh, in in the soul. Um, and so, I, I just wanted to get some thoughts on this, uh, and you know, the the effect of this sophistry on the soul, um, and and whether this method of teaching, you know. Not necessarily admonition, which is saying I'm right and you're wrong, uh, but this cross-examination process, uh, which is maybe what they were doing with that method of division and collection—a uh, bit of a cross-examination, you know, looking for some proportion between two opposite points—and so just to get some thoughts on this, um, Jose. Uh,
2: no, uh, so you, you didn't finish one, but anyway, like I don't think that these uh, a this, uh, this, uh, this dialectic like uh, way of uh, teaching, I don't think he's referring to this division, he's referring to the method that uh, Socrates used against the people that pretend that know something and they don't know anything. Because in the dialogue later he's saying that you have to, to challenge them and kind of ridicule them. So they will learn that uh, they, 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 they don't know what they pretend to know. I think this is the meta scholar like elencos, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, this is my this is my thought about this this, this section. Mm-hmm. But I didn't say how serious is the, the worst thing is to not not to not ignorance, because you might not know something. But the kind of things that you pre- you think that you know and you don't really know and right. you pretend that you know. This is right. the basic. So these people you have to unmask mm-hmm. and probably in public, like Socrates did, and this is why one of the reasons he went to, he was condemned to death, but... Uh, and, I, and I, I think this is what, uh, what this meaning in this, in this part of the
0: dialog mm-hmm. I like that term unmasking. Uh, and I think that uh, the, you know, the two different methods of teaching, you know, that the, the sophist would use one method, but the unmasking method is the method of cross-examination, I think is is something that maybe is helpful to, to think of in the approach, in that the approach
2: to unmasking. Um, we'll go to Moshe and then Darren. Um, when the
1: stranger says, um, Well, then don't we see that there's dissension in the souls of people in poor condition between beliefs and desires, anger and pleasures, reason and pains, and all of those things with each other? Well, when I read that, I thought that was those were queer distinctions. Um, beliefs and desires. Why isn't the distinction between beliefs and knowledge? Uh, anger and pleasures. Why isn't it between pain and pleasure? Reason and pains. Uh, why isn't it between reason and uh, and animal instinct or irrationality and all those other things? To go back to what I'd said before. Or I think the distinctions that the stranger, the visitor, is making are not as arbitrary as they are self-serving, because he makes these particular distinctions. I think in order to be able to talk further about this property of being, uh, you know, being in proportion. Uh, one of the things that I want to say about being in proportion is that it's not universal. Um, to quote. Um, um, to remind us of of, uh, of uh, Aristotle, you know, all excess is vice except for the pursuit 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 of virtue. Okay, so that kind of that kind of disproportion can be something that is 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 good in the soul. So I think we'd have to take a look at each one of these cases and find out if there's not a counterexample for what he's saying about. You know, certainly there are some cases where ugly and out of proportion um, uh, are, are are the ways. I mean, you you, you want to analyze ugly in terms of uh, you know out of proportion. Um, uh, but you know, there are other cases where where ugly wouldn't require being out of proportion at all. So I, I just want to be careful about what I take to be the self-serving nature of these distinctions and uh, and 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 actual. And actual distinctions
0: in, in 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 fact, right. And then I'm just highlighting here on the screen, you know, the part that you talked about. And so, you know, is comparing beliefs and desires, angers and anger and pleasures, reason and pains, are these correct or logical comparisons? And so that's it. It's something that yeah is is he being self-serving to can get the conclusion he's looking for. Or do these make some sense? Or is he talking about some sort of confusion in the soul? So, um, all right. Well, we've got about seven or eight minutes left in our scheduled Time we started about five or six minutes uh, late. So, uh, Darren, maybe you, you can have the last word.
5: Oh, okay. That's dangerous. I don't <laughs> want the last word. But, okay, it, this is not the last word. But, <laughs> I mean, we're going to have more dialogues on this. So, yeah. for conversations. For sure. Um but so I had my own, I wanted actually to continue reading on from what where James left off. But before I get there, I want to just respond to what Moshi was just saying about whether these distinctions, uh, this analysis is self-serving. So um, or or because um I think myself and others were saying it might it seems kind of arbitrary. And Moshi is saying that it's not arbitrary. Um it's self, they're actually, you know, in a way deliberate and self-serving. And um, so I, I just want to point out that um I'm not I'm not going to like this is not the last word, but I just I, I just want to point out it's possible that they're both right, that they can they can be arbitrary distinctions and self-serving. I think that's sort of I think what some of us were saying when we, we think it's arbitrary is that, you know, they, the, the distinctions could go any which way or you don't have to carve up the world in the way that's being proposed or, you know, things aren't being categorized correctly or, you know, or there is no correct way to categorize them or it's hard to say. So I think that's what we were saying. I think some of, many of us were saying it's arbitrary, but that that's not that doesn't contradict that it might be the distinctions might also be self-serving. So I think it can be both. So that's just something maybe a line of thought to pursue. Um, and I also think like self-serving, like I I I just want to like like for myself, like I that when I hear that I, I hear like selfish, but I, I I'm i not saying that's what Moshi's implication was, but like that's sort of something that someone could hear and I tend to hear and um so maybe there's a better word for it because i I don't know if they're like it's self-serving in a sense it's like self-interested or just for the purpose of his self per se so it, it might the aim might be like it might be serving something for instance in a lot of dialogues i feel like a lot of the uh conversation often is about turning an individual towards um philosophy like making them curious or making them wonder about something like that's it, like so uh, a, a dialogue could serve that purpose but it's not self-serving in a way it's self-serving in a way that's what you know socrates wants to do but it's not self-serving in the it, it's it's in the it, in the sense it's serving the purpose of getting people to be interested in the world and curious so uh so i, I just want to like that's just maybe my own personal like quibble with that word okay so um so regarding this uh passage um that james was just reading i just want to continue a bit on a bit because i find like the the part a little bit later to be really interesting so uh, this was at 230b um so about so the visitor says so they get does so they sell to get rid of the belief in one's own wisdom in another way the Aetidus asks how visitor uh they cross-examine someone when he thinks he's saying something though he says nothing then since his opinions will vary inconsistently these people will easily scrutinize them They collect these opinions together during the discussion, put them side by side, and show that they conflict with each other at the same time on the same subjects in relation to the same things in the same respects. The people who are being examined see this get angry at at themselves and become calmer toward others. They lose their inflated and rigid beliefs about themselves that, that way, and no loss is pleasanter to hear or has a more lasting effect on them. Doctors who work on the body think it can't benefit from any food that's offered to it until what's interfering with it from inside is removed. The people who cleanse the soul, my young friend, likewise think the soul too won't get any advantage from any learning that's offered to it until someone shames it by refuting it, removes the opinions that interfere with learning and exhibits it cleansed, believing that it knows only those things that it does know and nothing more. Okay, so I mean and and then the following part's interesting too, but I won't go there. Um so like to me, I guess uh I guess this is sort of a new new train of thought, but like like what's interesting to me is that and and we see this in other dialogues too, that um the part of getting t- like obtaining knowledge, which we assume that philosophy tries to do, um like there's I, I just find it fascinating how like it's often portrayed that there's like shaming involved and people get angry and you know people are, are humiliated. And how like, but this is and how these emotions are a part of philosophy. And um like I find it interesting just because like I, I think philosophy sometimes people have the impression that it's very like dispassionate, that it's purely about like, you know, doing like logic on, you know, some <laughs> theological problems but i think like philosophy as it exists in the world and amongst uh, like, human beings at least like often does look the way that um socrates is presenting it or not so- sorry not socrates this stranger is presenting it here uh, although socrates does present it this way a, a lot so i just find it um so like and th- this is a connection between like the philosopher and doing philosophy and has some some kind of connection with the soul that's interesting um so it's not I don't know. Like, I feel like that might be, like, an understanding that might be some kind of connection with what a philosopher is, as opposed to the sophist, um, because I think both use logic and analysis. Both, both often, you know, use emotions and engage with emotions. I think Socrates often tries to evoke emotions in other in his interlocutors, often, you know, to try to get them to turn towards the good. I think, but but it's not dispassionate. You can't argue someone into, you know, being virtuous or whatever. Um, so I don't know, like, I just think like this section is a really interesting point. I don't know if it comes up later in dialogue. I've only read this sign reading, but I just want to point that out that like this, this, um, like this, um, this stuff on the emotions of knowledge are coming in here.
0: Thank you for that. And, and actually that was a good section to read continuing on, on from what I had read, um, because it, it highlights, I think, or at least to me, it highlights that, um, the soul needs to discover things in itself, like internally, and so by this cross-examination process, the soul will discover in itself that it, it, it that it is being illogical, uh, and so it can cleanse itself. I think is, is you know, maybe maybe the thrust of that particular section. So I think that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, and we've got maybe just two minutes left, and so we'll go to Jose J. and Jose J. Maybe can have the last word. <clears throat>
2: No, like um, the, something that this is, is, well, he's talking here about the, the, the Socratic method. This is a, like a very, let's say, very known, popular, like the dialectic method to, with questions and answers and going to the truth. But uh, it has a, well, what I see in the dialogues, he has two purposes. One purpose is to honestly get to the truth, like a two, interlocutors and go and get into the to the truth and, 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 and revising concepts but the other purpose was that to 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 punish uh like a sophist really to ridicule in public you can see for example the ideal of the utifrau for example that uh that he goes after him and and discover all his uh exactly what he's saying in this part of the dialogue, no? all these contradictions and, and punishing him and, and punishing at the end, he just, he said, oh, I don't have, I don't have time, I have to go. <laughs> anyway, and uh, and another, another thing that he, let me think, in this dialogue this is considered one of the, in the latest uh, period of uh, like uh, Plato, the latest dialogues. And uh, in the, if you can see this, this uh, way to, to use the Socratic method to to question and to, and to like punish uh, 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 interlocutors is used more is used in the early dialogues and after that in Plato he changed because uh, the dialogues they are not like that they are not aggressive they are like you see in the Republic for example well, except uh, book one is is very amicable it's, it's just doing the dialectic to to Try to find the truth, but uh, this dialogue, that is uh, the, the the sophist, that is one of the latest dialogue. He he mentioned that um, enough is valid to do what Socrates was doing in the in the, in the, in the, in the maybe because after Socrates went to death, he, later he didn't want to, to bother too many people. I don't know, maybe <laughs> this is why he stopped uh, punishing people. Okay, thank you very much, uh, James,
3: for the great discussion. Yeah, well, well,
0: thank you, and and you know the interesting point about the potential changes in Plato's tone and and approach to to things, and certainly he's not a fan of the sophists. I think that's that's fairly clear um, throughout a number of dialogues. Darren mentioned a number of the others as well. So, um, so well, thank you all. I mean, it, it's been a great discussion as always, and uh, looking forward to building on this discussion in our next session, which will also be on the Sophist, So I think the next session we will do um, ending, we'll, we'll start where we ended today, which was 235D, and we'll go to 254B. Uh, and that's a fairly complex, fairly hefty section, but I think what we um, discussed today, particularly in that method of continuous division, I think will be helpful in understanding that section of the Sophist. So we'll go to uh, 254B next time in two weeks, and um, I want to thank everybody uh, who's online today for um, for being part of this discussion and really looking forward to what we can learn next time. Because you know I've learned a lot today, you know, just things I hadn't thought of before from points that everybody's brought up. So uh, that's the benefit of us being in this discussion and engaging in our own dialectic process. So. So thanks again, I'll end the recording. And uh, those who wish to stay online for Plato's Cafe, uh, which is just a casual half hour unrecorded uh, discussion uh, are welcome to stay on. And uh, we will continue to talk either about Plato or philosophy in general. So thank you all and I'll stop the recording and hoping to see you in two weeks.